On this week's 51%, we speak with University at Albany professor Dr. Janelle Hobson about the life and work of Harriet Tubman and a new project to mark Tubman's 200th birthday. We're trying to celebrate her. It's part of history, but it's also very much a history that is still very living. It's very present. We also speak with author Tracy Michelle lewis Jiggetts about the restorative power of Black joy. Coming up on 51%. I was standing around like one of those girls I had seen in a movie. The whole world was a movie back then. I had my sunglasses on, I wanted to be seen without seeing Shiloh Lita. I wasn't really in it, I didn't really get it. You're listening to 51%, a WAMC production dedicated to women's issues and experiences. Thanks for joining us. I'm Jesse King. When you think of prominent women in American history, who comes to mind? Is it Susan B. Anthony, Rosa Parks, Harriet Tubman? Well, hopefully all three and more. But Harriet Tubman is perhaps one of the most popular female figures in American history, particularly Black history. In fact, the abolitionists won a popularity contest of sorts in a 2015 poll gauging which historic woman should be the new face of the $20 bill. A redesigned bill with her likeness is set to roll out by 2030. When I was taught about Harriet Tubman growing up, we mostly talked about her work as a conductor on the Underground Railroad. But like most of us, there were many sides to her. A liberator, a nurse, a veteran of the Civil War, spy, suffragist, daughter, sister, mother, and friend. I thought it'd be nice to learn a little more about Tubman's work, who she was, and her legacy. Of course, it's Black History Month, but we're also circling Tubman's 200th birthday. She was believed to have been born Araminta Ross in late February, early March, 1822. Dr. Janelle Hobson, a professor of women's gender and sexuality studies at the University at Albany, is the impetus behind an initiative to commemorate the Tubman 200. The Harriet Tubman Bicentennial Project is a special collection of essays, poetry, artwork, and interactive pieces honoring Tubman in Ms. Magazine through March 10th. Hobson has been studying Tubman for years, and I recently sat down with her to learn more about the magazine's guest of honor. Her story starts in Dorchester County, Maryland, when she was born. Oh, maybe we can even go further than that, because I know in my introductory essay, I talk about her maternal grandmother, who came from the Gold Coast of West Africa, what we now call Ghana. Her maternal grandmother was called Modesty, and she was from the Asante tribe in Ghana. And she was uh, brought over to Eastern Shore, Maryland, through the transatlantic slave trade sometime during the American Revolutionary War period in the 18th century. And that grandmother gave birth to her mother, who was also called Harriet. Actually, Harriet Tubman renames herself when she marries. Uh, she renames herself after her mother, whose name was Harriet, although everyone called her her mother Rit for short. Uh, so that is where I would start with her story, just thinking of how slavery was a kind of matrilineal heritage. And by that, I mean most slave laws in the United States actually stipulated they required that all children that are born to enslaved 
women would themselves be enslaved. So it doesn't matter who the father is. The father could be enslaved or the father could be a free black person or the father could even be a white man. The mother is enslaved, that child will be enslaved. And that's kind of how we get race, this idea of race, as well as race that's shaped by gender politics. So what I like about Harriet Tubman's story is that she, she rejects that birthright outright when she decides to free herself and then goes back into the slave South to free her family and friends and have her join her up in the free North or and also into Canada because they eventually went to Canada because of the fugitive slave law that empowered slaveholders to go into free states and, and reclaim those freedom seekers who ran away. Um, and so how exactly did she work to liberate herself? And like, what were the driving forces of her becoming a conductor on the Underground Railroad? In 1849 is when Harriet Tubman attempts escape from slavery. And she actually attempts escape twice. The first time, September 17th, she tries to run away with two of her brothers, but they lose their way. So they end up returning. And part of the reason why she wanted to run away uh, is because she was being threatened with sale further south. Um, her owner had died earlier that year in March, and his widow was contemplating selling off her slaves to settle whatever debts she accrued, you know, in her widowhood. And Harriet Tubman got wind of this and decided that, you know, if she sold further south, she's not going to see anybody, any of her loved ones ever again. That already happened because she had already lost three sisters to the auction block. So she tries for the first time with two brothers, they end up returning. And then later on, sometime later on in the fall, she runs away on her own. This time, she's able to kind of follow uh, some of the instructions she had gathered about the Underground Railroad. So she's hiding out by day. She follows the North Star by night. She does this 100-mile trek to Philadelphia, and that's when she's able to reach freedom. And uh, she's able to reach uh, William Still, who's considered one of the station masters of the Underground Railroad in Philadelphia. And working with him, she's able to get set up in the free north, works as a domestic, but she makes the choice to go back because she was all alone and she could not feel herself being free when her family and friends are back in slavery. So that was uh, very much the motivation for going back over and over again. So she made roughly 13 trips back to the South for the decade of the 1850s. And she rescues around 70 people and was able to also pass instructions on to an equal number of other people who were able to follow her instructions to get to freedom. It does require you to think about the skills that she had. That's one of the things that I liked about the different essays we've been able to highlight in the series for this project. For example, one of our earlier articles was by Chanda Prescott-Weinstein, who is a theorist of astrophysics. And she writes about Harriet Tubman being a great astronomer, for example, uh, being able to follow the North Star. What are the technical skills that required? Uh, she learned these skills from 
people like her father, Ben Ross, and others in her community who learned to live off the land, who learned to navigate, being able to navigate by uh, the night sky, navigate through the forest, being able to use the forest as a way to be able to track your way and find your way around. She's also disabled. She was severely injured when she was an adolescent. Uh, sometime between 1834 and 1836, she's on an errand to a neighborhood store where she's actually struck accidentally. There was an overseer striking this two pound lead weight at a runaway uh, slave and she got in the way and she was struck in the head and she um, nearly died. But from this injury, she experienced debilitating seizures, epileptic seizures, and basically Based on some of the descriptions of what she had, she experienced, you know, visions and strange dreams. She uh, had out-of-body sensations. So some historians, I'm thinking of someone like Kate Larson, for example, who contributed believes that she suffered from temporal lobe epilepsy. And those are some of the conditions. So we also have to imagine not only did she have great skill in being able to navigate her way through the night, navigate her way from Maryland to Pennsylvania, but to also realize that she's also doing this as a disabled Black woman. <laughs> wow. And she also, like, she helped organize a raid, correct? Yes, she actually, uh, because of her skills as an underground railroad conductor, there were those who, and that's the interesting thing about Harriet Tubman, she seems to have known so many important people. <laughs> so the governor of Massachusetts immediately recommends her as someone who should be volunteering to provide service for the Union forces in the Civil War. Uh, she gets involved in the Civil War in 1862 when she's sent down to Beaufort, South Carolina, where she's working as a spy, as a scout, as a nurse, also as a cook. And so it that's part of the work she was doing when she started scouting the Kambahi River, South Carolina, because in 1863, June 2nd, 1863, is when she becomes the first woman in U.S. history to actually lead uh, troops and their commander in this military raid, and they're able to free 756 people. <laughs> it's, it's amazing. So, and yes, that's an interesting question, I think, in terms of why is it more people don't know that about her? I think one of the ironies of that is we know who Harriet Tubman is <laughs> precisely because she agreed to dictate a biography about her life to make up for not getting paid <laughs> for her services as a Civil War veteran. You mentioned in your introduction a description of Harriet Tubman by biographer Milton Sernet saying she is a litmus test for diversity and inclusion. Can you tell me what you mean by that or what he meant by that? Okay, so Milton Cernet was actually referring to multiculturalism. We now call it diversity and inclusion, as I just updated that. But he actually was referring to the ways in which when Harriet Tubman is introduced into the curriculum, we then have debates about the appropriateness for having that. And I think that it's a purpose to what we're dealing with now with the different kinds of conversations we're having about inclusive education, or even the ways that a term like critical race theory gets bandied about and means different things to different people based on their own ideas about what race and racial history means in this country. So Harriet Tubman is an interesting 
I think, quote unquote, litmus test, precisely because one, she's the most popular Black woman in American history, I mean, right alongside Sojourner Truth and Rosa Parks, obviously, but she's definitely one of the most recognized women. So when you bring her into the conversation, it's an invitation to bring in other aspects of Black history and Black women's history. So she's a gateway in some ways. So she does become a kind of litmus test in terms of what are the limits for how we are learning about our history and learning about uh, what slavery means, what freedom means. Uh, she's very much, you know, a part of that history. And I think what's interesting about Harriet Tubman is her story ends in freedom and not, and not only in ending in freedom, it ends in liberation. She's liberating other people, whether we're talking about her going back to the slave South multiple times or with what she was able to do during the Civil War, freeing 756 people. Uh, so she's actively engaged in, in fighting for freedom. She's a freedom fighter. It also forces us to see Black women, Black people in general, who have had a hand in their own freedom and in their own liberation. So that that changes the kind of narrative that you create about American history, where it's no longer about, oh, President Abraham Lincoln, you know, freed the slaves through the Emancipation Proclamation. Uh, that obviously needs to be complicated when you realize, actually, if you look at those who were enslaved and who were able to free themselves, they had a hand in their own freedom. They had a hand in their own liberation. And we need to recognize that. And someone like Harriet Tubman, you know, she's living proof that people did not just passively accept the status quo. I think you might have already just touched on it, but I was going to ask you, like, as this project is in Ms. Magazine, like, what do you hope readers most get out of it? What's interesting is Ms. Magazine, this year is also a milestone for them. It's their um, 50th anniversary. They were very much involved in using journalism and media for the front lines of the feminist movement. I think it's important to recognize that in addition to Harriet Tubman's importance to Black history, she's also important to women's history as well. Uh, she was part of this women's suffrage movement. So issues of voting rights is also part of that legacy. The week before she died, <laughs> she died March 10, 1913, but the week before March 3rd was the Women's National Suffrage March that they had in Washington, DC. And she was already too ill to attend, but she did deliver a message <laughs> through Black suffragists, specifically Mary B. Talbert. And she told the women suffragists, you know, to stand together tell the women to stand together for God will not forsake us. Now, granted, the women did not stand together. There were quite a few racist white suffragists who refused to unite with the Black women who attended and even tried to insist that they get at the back of the line of the parade, uh, which is unfortunate because that is so against the kind of message that Harriet Tubman put forth. Because what's interesting about Harriet Tubman is, you know, she is very much a leader within Black communities. She's able to organize and, and work within her own community, but she also did really good solidarity work 
with other people and there are other white abolitionists and white supporters of black rights that she was able to work with. She was able to work with John Brown. She was able to work with William Lloyd Garrison. She was able to work with Susan B. Anthony and Lucretia Mott. And it's because of her ability to work across those racial lines and across the gender lines that I think why we still know her because so many people were willing to write about her. In addition to the series of essays in which you can learn more about Harriet Tubman, uh, you can also explore her whole life history. We have a very comprehensive timeline. Uh, we also have an interactive calculator that kind of figure out just how much we actually owe Harriet Tubman for her enslaved labor. Uh, we have poetry. We have a, a public haiku tribute. So the public is actually invited to submit a haiku and tribute to Harriet Tubman's bicentennial. It is a birthday celebration. So we're, we're trying to celebrate her and to show that it's part of history, but it's also very much a history that is still very living. It's very present. I think we can think of our time in 2022 as a crossroads moment where we could either go back in time to doing things in an oppressive way, or we can actually move forward towards a more equitable future that is based on a firmer foundation of justice for all. Harry Tubman is somebody who can actually help us in terms of getting into the right direction. Dr. Janelle Hobson is the editor of the Harriet Tubman Bicentennial Project, out now in Ms. Magazine, both online and in print, through March 10th. Dr. Hobson, thanks so much for speaking with me. Thank you again for having me. Thank you. Our next guest is celebrating a milestone of her own. Tracy Michelle Lewis Jiggetts has been writing professionally for roughly 20 years. She's published at least 15 books, teaches English and Black studies at the Community College of Philadelphia, and is the founder of HeartSpace, a community to help those dealing with trauma via storytelling and the arts. To mark her 20-year career, she released her latest book at the start of Black History Month called Black Joy, Stories of Resistance, Resilience, and Restoration. Through 36 autobiographical essays, Lewis Jiggetts explores the restorative strength of joy in Black culture and the ways it can be used for both personal and communal healing. You know, Black joy kind of came out of my personal experience. It came out of me um, wrestling with what joy felt like in my body, going to therapy and my therapist, like literally asking me, uh, what does joy feel like? And I, you know, 40 some odd years old and I'm like, eh, I don't know. And so beginning to unpack that work and then using it really as an entry point for looking at how black people in general have been able to use joy as a way, you know, to resist, but also I think to heal from some of the trauma and some of our historical and even present day experiences. You make it a point in the beginning of the book to differentiate between happiness and joy. So to start off, how do you define joy and especially Black joy? Absolutely. I think happiness is, you know, that moment when, let's just say I'm on the 
roller coaster at Six Flags and like I'm excited and I'm with my family and I'm having a good time. It, it tends to just show up in particular moments. I think joy is something that is ever present, even if we don't feel it, so to speak, like it is ever present. It is always accessible to us if we know how to access it, right? And it is the thing, it's like, you know, how does an enslaved person still laugh when laughter literally could have been a potential for death, right? And so it doesn't mean that they were happy about their situation. It meant that there was an underlying, almost like a spiritual undercurrent. Black joy is simply all of that human stuff within the context and the experience of Black people in America, but also globally. And so Black joy looks a little different because it lives in the contain the same container, if you will, of grief and trauma and all of the other experiences that are maybe not the same as other groups. You lay out early on that Black joy can be a, quote, mechanism for resistance, a method of resilience, and a master plan for restoration. Can you elaborate on that a little more for me? Sure. I mean, Black joy as resistance, I think, is the thing that it's the catchphrase that we've been hearing, especially over the last couple of years or so. And I think what that just means is that in the midst of protests, in the midst of the fight for rights and equality and equity and all those things, there are also opportunities for our joy to stand as a way of saying, I am human, right? Like it is a, it's a way to fight the dehumanization that comes with racism and discrimination and white supremacy and all those kinds of things. Like the protests of summer 2020, there was two things happening there, right? Like there was the confrontations with police, there was the chanting, there was the faces we saw on the media, right? But then there were also dancing and singing. And and in Philly, there was a couple who got married, right? (laughs) Like right in the middle. So there were these, you know, this undercurrent, as I said before, of joy that was ever present. But I think that it's also the way that Black folks have always healed. When we get to resilience and restoration, what I mean is that there have been, especially somatically in our bodies, ways that we have been able to move that trauma out of us so we can live another day, so we can take care of our family, so we can do what we need to do. So it's both and, right? It's a resistance. It's an active form of resistance, but it's also the way we have always healed. I like how you also pointed out that joy should be founded on self-love and compassion. Why do you think that? I think the biggest thing is it spurs longevity. That fine line between happiness and joy that I talked about, it gets really gray if joy is only experienced on a moment, you know, on a moment by moment basis, or we can only feel it on a moment by moment basis. And I think having a foundation of self-compassion, of grace, of self-love, right, allows for you to be always aware of where joy is, even if you're grieving and not actively able to call it up, so to speak, you're aware that it's there. The only way you know that is if you are able to see yourself differently. And I think that's what I kind of get into, especially early on in the book is like, I want black folks to maybe eschew or or get rid of the gaze of, you know, what maybe a white people or, or, or what, the government or whoever else might be thinking and focus internally, look at our community and say, we love each other, we love us. And in doing so, 
our joy becomes more prominent. And I feel like it will add to our movements. It will make our movements have more longevity, even more so than what it already has. So I know you touched on it a little bit earlier, but how did you personally access or discover your joy? <laughs> that's that's a very interesting, um, you know, as I said, I had a therapist who asked me that, like asked me, what does it feel like? And I was like, I don't know. <laughs> so I had to begin that work. And I tell the story in the book that I just happened to be watching a very popular television show. And I was just grinning and laughing and I'm a storyteller. So I was just, I was just happy because, or, you know, experiencing joy, I think, because I was excited about the characters and the way it was being written and the layers and all those kinds of things. And like my husband walks in and he's like, uh, something weird is going on. Let me, (laughs) let me leave. But in that moment, I think I was self-aware enough to say, wait a minute, my hands feel weird. My my chest is heaving, like I'm excited, I'm happy. Ah, okay, this is what joy feels like in my body. And not, you know, not so that I can run around, I guess, telling people that, although I guess that's what I'm doing in this book, (laughs) but so that when I have, as I've had recently, back-to-back losses in my family, when I am experiencing frustration or anger at you know, the Voting Rights Act not being passed, or when I'm experiencing that, I can call upon, it's like a screenshot or a snapshot, right? That I can remember what joy feel like, felt like in my body and I can go get it, not so that I can push the pain aside, but, but though I can have, create some balance so that I can, again, live another day. I'm very sorry to hear about your losses. Um, Now that you're able to more easily access your joy, what are some of the other ways that you, I guess, nurture it and practice self-love and self-compassion? Did writing this book sort of maybe like open up new ways for you to do that? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things is resting. I love the Nat Ministry on, you know, that's online um, and how she really emphasizes rest as a way to counter sort of the uh, colonization, white supremacy mindset that's out there. That like, it's it's a, a form of defiance, right? Um, but it's not something that you earn, it's something that is your right. And I feel like I think of joy in the same way and I think of self-love in the same way. And so for me, it's about my morning rituals, it's about my practices, you have meditation and prayer, it is about, you know, the ways I, you know, decide to say no and try to be, I'm, I'm still working on it, but I try to be okay with saying no. And um, the way I snuggle with my daughter and I, you know, look at her and I see myself, the freer version of myself, and I take that in and sit with it so that it becomes one with me, right? Like I then become just as free as she is, even though I have all the stuff and all the bags. So yeah, I mean, and and, yes, writing the book, I think helped me to explore additional ways, things that I wasn't doing beforehand that I do try to make a conscious effort to do now. I feel like there are a lot of um, conversations going on right now about mental health and about self-care and self-compassion. Is there anything that you feel like is sort of missing from that conversation at the moment or something that you would like to add to that conversation? I mean, I I love the fact that we're talking about it more. 
I love that in a lot of ways we are, you know, removing the stigma of things like therapy or therapeutic in interventions or even medication or any of that. I love that that's happening. I think there's some decolonization work that still has to happen, right? There's also issues around access and privilege, right? Um, I recognize my privilege as someone who can go to a therapist every week. Not everybody has access to health insurance or access to that. And you can destigmatize it all you want, but if I, if I can't get to it, right, just because of economic reasons or whatever, um, that's a barrier that I think needs to be talked about even more. I know there are people talking about it, but like even more. And I gravitate toward that because it disproportionately affects black and brown folks. You know, the people who may, who are experiencing this generational trauma, if you will, as a result of white supremacist systems, you know, also are being limited in being able to access one of the many ways, which by the way, is the reason why we've come up with our own tools, including joy to heal, right? Because we didn't have access to that. So I think that's probably the conversation I would say I would like to see more of. While you were writing this book, was there a part that was particularly special or therapeutic to you? Yeah, I think um, the thread that moves me the most when I think about the essays are the ones that where I talk about my grandmother and my great grandmother and just my ancestors in general. You know, it's easy to and necessary in a lot of ways to talk about the hardships and the trauma and what maybe they didn't have access to or didn't know. But what I loved was being able to explore what they did know and what they passed down that wasn't trauma. You know, the generational joy that they gave me, the ways to see the world, writing about my grandmother and how she traveled the world working for this family, but really retained her sense of self. Right. She wasn't going to buy into any stereotypical images of who she should be as a caretaker for a, a prominent white family. She was very much herself and, and taught me how to reinvent myself over and over again. So those were the stories I think that really I'm grateful to have written that I had the chance to write. Overall, like, what do you hope readers take away from your book? I hope that by reading my story, that they will be able to or willing to turn inward and unpack their own story, right? And begin to, you know, think about or figure out what joy feels like in their own bodies and, you know, begin to work at accessing it when they need it to counter the grief, to counter, or you know what, not even to counter, but to allow that joy to live alongside all of the, the other emotions that they have. Um, so if people are doing that kind of work as they're processing my essays, then I think my job is done. Tracy Michelle Lewis Jiggetts is the author of Black Joy, Stories of Resistance, Resilience, and Restoration, out now on Gallery Books. Tracy, thanks so much for taking the time. You've been listening to 51%. 51% is a national production of WAMC Northeast Public Radio. It's produced by me, Jesse King. Our executive producer is Dr. Alan Shartok, and our theme is Lolita by the Albany-based artist Girl Blue. 
A big thanks to Dr. Janelle Hobson, Tracy Michelle lewis Jiggets, and you for tuning in. To learn more about our guests, their work, or trust the show in general, check us out at wamcpodcast.org. You can also find us on Twitter and Instagram at 51% Radio. Let us know what you think or if you have a story you'd like to share as well. Until next week, I'm Jesse King for 51%. I was every single girl, I was nobody else, I was so sure of myself I was fifteen and a half, he was a hollow laugh And I lost my cool somewhere along the way A nightmare down the hallway, I had to learn how to look away I lost my cool Sweet.